Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to be looking at verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. And that's page 844 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, A well-known Christian from the 15th century, Thomas Akempis, wrote in his very famous devotional book called Imitation of Christ, Jesus today has many who love His heavenly kingdom, but few who carry His cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people He finds to share His banquet, few to share His fast. Everyone desires to take part in His rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for His sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as the drinking of the cup of suffering. Many that revere His morality, few that follow Him in the indignity of the cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them, Many praise and bless Him as long as they receive comfort from Him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or become deeply depressed. Those who love Jesus for His own sake, and not for the sake of their own comfort, bless Him in time of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation. You know what I love about reading uh, works throughout Christian history is that you find that you know things really don't change, people don't change. You know, times, places, spaces, faces, names—all that change, but people were the same, and nothing's really different. You know, we often think that, given our unique place in history, that somehow we've got a special look on life. Like the people that came before us, they just didn't really understand what life was like. That our, our circumstances, our situations, our struggles, our desires, uh, the, the temptations that we face are somehow different than they've ever been before. And so we kind of look at ourselves as above them. That we, to look back on them is to look at a fool. But when we do, when you take time to actually study, you find that there's a deep richness that in fact is lacking today that they understood people far better than we do most of the time because they had to live life among them. And what you see is that, man, the same struggles, the same difficulties, the same hardships, in fact, maybe even more hardships are faced in their day than it is today. Mankind is the same. There's nothing different about us than them. You know, Thomas Akempis, he wrote The Imitation of Christ almost 600 years ago. Yet his description of the man-centered faith that he saw in his day is the exact same sort of me-centered, easy-believism that we have in our own. Times have changed, places have changed, faces have changed, but mankind is exactly the same. Same struggles, same desires, same sin. We all, by nature, want the benefits that we might gain from appeasing God through some forms of religion. But few are willing to pay the cost of discipleship. When we're faced with a decision, and we look at this and we ask, how is this going to benefit me? How is this going to advance my cause? How, is this going, how am I going to gain from this? 
And, and that's the deciding factor. We look at everything as a means of gains. Even, even Christ, we look at discipleship as, as this idea of like, okay, I'll take Jesus only as much as I can gain from him. But that's not what discipleship is, folks. A disciple of Christ doesn't ask, how will this benefit me? A disciple of Christ, a true disciple of Christ, asks, how will this advance Christ? You see, a Christian follows Christ. He follows Christ on the way of the cross. Discipleship is not about you. It's about Him. So let's, with that, let's, let's go ahead and let's look at the passage. It's Mark 8, starting in verse 34. It says, In calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said this to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, as we're here today, we're listening to your word, that we would be acutely aware of your spirit. You are everywhere present. You are here in this room right now. And God, we pray and we ask that our hearts and our minds might be open to receive your word, that firm foundation that we have. And God, I pray that it would dig deep into the crevices and the dark places and the recesses of our soul to, to reveal to, to, to in those areas how we are loving ourselves rather than being disciples of Christ. And God, I pray that we would honestly repent of those things and follow in faith. God, we thank you that that Christ has done what we cannot. That your grace gives us strength to walk in his way. And I pray earnestly that we would believe that. That we would really, really believe that today. So God, we pray that your spirit would come. And we ask in the name of your powerful son. Amen. This morning we're going to look at five descriptions of true discipleship. The first is that true discipleship is centered on Jesus, not on self. You see, to follow Christ means that you leave behind the idols of self-preeminence and self-permission. Last week, we got hit pretty hard. We looked at verses 27 through 33. And we were challenged to think more deeply about Christ than simply who He is and why He came. Right, Peter had, had been there. He'd rightly identified that Jesus is the Christ. He kind of figured that out by the grace of God working in his life. But he couldn't see what that would ultimately mean for Jesus and for those who followed him. He couldn't really grasp the fact that this Messiah, this promised one that they had been waiting for for so long, would have to suffer and die and rise again. It just couldn't sink into his mind because he had these preconceived notions about what the Christ would be, this great glorious, victorious, conquering king.
king. And so he decides that he ought to, like any good Bible-believing person, go ahead and just rebuke Jesus. <laughs> this worked out well for him, right? We saw this. You know? I mean, he's so convinced of his own rightness. He's so convinced of his own personal autonomy and authority that he decides that he has to step in and rebuke the Son of God. We saw that Jesus is preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching who he is and why he came. And Peter's like, uh, excuse me, can I borrow you for a second? Can you come over here? I need to tell you something. And so he begins to chastise the Son of God. It's just, it's unbelievable. But anyone that opposes God's plan, anyone that opposes God's purposes, God's will, anyone that opposes God's nature and character becomes God's adversary. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking and acting like Satan. All right? Your thoughts at this moment are demonic. Anytime you set yourself up apart, autonomous from God's plan, God's purposes, and think, you know what, this is the way it ought to be. This is the way that I want it. You are satanic. It's unbelievable. We looked at that, and, and that has some huge consequences on our lives. Because we cannot pick and choose how we are going to obey. We cannot pick and choose, oh, I want it to look this way and not this way. I think this is a fine substitute for that, or whatever it might be. And he came down hard on us. And I came down hard on you. But I hope you understand. I'm just being faithful to the text, brothers and sisters. I, I love you guys too much to let you just ignore to see how this applies to your life. Okay? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wasn't thinking about God. Peter was thinking about himself, about his desires, about his agenda. Uh, you can't follow Christ, though, if you are putting yourself first. You can't. You see, a wrong view of the Messiah leads to a wrong view of discipleship. If you're viewing Christ less than he reveals himself to be, then you will not follow him in the way that he is called and commanded. If you look to Jesus simply as some sort of moral teacher or a wise man, or maybe he's an example that you think you should live by, if Jesus is your friend or he's some sort of psychological crutch there when times get really tough, or, or you want to look at Jesus simply as a Savior and not as a Lord, then you're not following him. You're not seeing him for who he is. And what you'll end up doing is treating him as an equal or you'll treat him as an option to take or leave. But when you recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He has all authority, that He is Lord, that He is King, that He is supreme, that He is ultimate, that He is first, then you can't put that aside. You realize that you have to submit to Him. You are subject to Him. He is not an option. He is ultimate. You can't just disregard Him. You, can't, you don't have license just to do as you please, to pick and choose, to permit yourself to do this and not that. You do not have that capability. Only He can do that. And see, that's Peter's problem, and that's our problem. He doesn't fully comprehend who Jesus is and why He came, and so He won't follow Him. So beginning in verse 34, Jesus begins to explain what He means when He says, hey, you need to set your mind on the things of God. This so is verse 34. Jesus, He not only tells His disciples, but He also draws the crowd to Himself. And He says to all of them, 
Listen, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple. He looks at his disciples, but also to the crowd, with them and the crowd, and he says, you have two options before you. And here's the thing, guys. You can't just dismiss this as saying that this was just to the disciples. Because it's clear from the passage that he not only says it to his disciples, but to the crowd, to those people who are on the fringes, those people that are coming around Jesus for the wrong reasons, but nevertheless, they're there. And so if it applies to them, If he's giving them these options, he's giving them to you. You can't just dismiss this and say, no, that's for Peter, that's not for me. Here are the options that he presents. Two of them, two options, two conditions, and both of these have implications. Option one, you can come after me. You can be my disciple, right? You can have the Christ. You can follow the Messiah and you can have all the benefits that come along with that. All the benefits that that entails can be yours. But, that has implications. If you're going to do that, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. An instrument of suffering and salvation that I choose for you. And you must follow me. Friends, we look at the cross as, it, as if it's something that's back in the past. We want to treat like, take, deny yourself and taking up your cross means that, oh yeah, I'm going to take up Jesus' cross. I'm going to accept that for my life. That was back then. And now I'm going to do my own thing. But no, the cross has two functions. It justifies us. right? It's, it declares us righteous, saying, listen... Christ has died for you. His righteousness now applies to you. But also it means that you take up your cross. Your Savior went this way. You're going that way too. And that includes suffering. Suffering is the crucible of sanctification in your life. And you have to embrace it. It's not an option. And in that process, He brings about salvation. You're not just declared righteous. You actually become righteous. Guys, read 1 Peter. And the way Peter talks about suffering and how important it is in the lives of believers. If necessary, you are grieved by various trials, but it brings forth this overwhelming joy that is inexpressible because you are working out the, out, the, the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. It's a glorious thing. He said, you must follow me and not yourself. The second option don't come after me. If you don't come after me, then, then do what you want. You know, you can exalt yourself. You can permit yourself. You can take up your own throne. You can follow your own way. That's fine. But here's the thing. You, you cannot have it both ways. You do not have the option. Hear me now. You cannot have the benefits that come from the first option and live as if you're in the second option. That's just not possible. You cannot live as if you are king, as if this is your world and you are God. And think that you are going to receive the benefits of following and being identified with Christ. It just doesn't work that way. You can't have Jesus as your Savior and not have Him as your Lord. He makes a condition here. He says, if you want to follow me, then do this. And Jesus is not making a suggestion. He's not saying, hey, if you want to follow me, then I think it's a good idea for you to go ahead and deny yourself. 
I think it's probably advantageous, if you're going to follow me, to take up your cross and follow after me. No, these are imperatives. This is a command here. He's saying, listen, if you want this to be true, then this is what you will do. You have no other option. This is your command. You will deny yourself. You will take up your cross. You will follow me. That's it. A Christian cannot follow his own way. Luke, in his account of this, of this instant, he adds the word daily. You have to deny yourself daily. You have to take up your cross daily. You have to follow him daily. Not when it's convenient. Not in those big moments of life. Not when it fits your own agenda, your own plan. Not sometimes when it allows for comfort and allows for personal advancement. Not, not when you're feeling like it. But every moment of every day, you follow Jesus and not yourself. A Christian follows Christ. Christ went to the cross. Where do you think you're going? Easy street? To say yes to Jesus means that you say no to yourself. You are not simply looking to Him because of what you'll gain. Alright? I don't become a Christian because it's going to advance my cause. It's going to benefit me. I mean, yeah, those gifts, they come along with it. But ultimately, I don't become a Christian so that I can avoid hell or so that I can see my granny in heaven and I can walk the streets of gold and I can have health, wealth, and prosperity for all eternity and so that I can feel relief from the shame and consequences of my sin. Though those are all byproducts, praise God, that come along with it. No, I follow Christ because He is the King, because He is Lord, because He is the Son of God. That's why I follow Him. He lived a perfect life, a life that I cannot live, and He died and was raised in order to reconcile sinners like me to God. I follow Him because He is the Creator. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. And though He by right owns me because He made me and He sustains my very existence, I belong to Him Yet He bought me again with His own blood. I am twice owned if I'm in Christ. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We cannot say we follow Christ if day after day after day after day we worship and serve ourselves or excuse ourselves from following Christ's commands. It's not an option. And so true discipleship is centered on Jesus, not self. Second, true discipleship is set, sets its hope on the cross and not on life. Following Christ means leaving behind the idols of self-preservation and self-praise. Picking up again in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. Now the world wants to tell us that this life is all there is. This is it. You've got this one life to live, and so you need to make the most of it. 
You've got to live it up. You've got to protect it. You've got to cherish it. You've got to, you've got to savor every moment. You've got to indulge yourself in all the pleasures. Don't, don't hinder yourself from any desire that you may have because you'll never be given that and then you'll die and that's it. You'll return to the dust and you are no more. So eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We are Epicureans by nature. We're afraid that if we devote our lives to something, that if we die for something, then that would be a life wasted. And so rather than taking up our cross, we simply try to tack Jesus onto parts of our lives. And those open spaces where it fits, it's kind of convenient, it fits in my schedule, my agenda, hoping that that will be somehow enough to satisfy God if He's there, but not enough to waste our life if He isn't. Tell me you haven't thought that. We all have. Jesus doesn't give us this option. He says if you would try to save your life, if you would try to prolong it, if you would try to maximize your pleasures, if your ultimate goal in life is to capitalize on this life, the result is that you will lose it. Attempting to save yourself through medicine, through religious deeds, it's going to result in nothing. It's pointless. Saving the maximum potential of your life by seeking your own advantage, by seeking your own personal gain, it's pointless. It won't get you anywhere if you pamper yourself on all the pleasantries that this world has to offer. It's all going to come to nothing. If saving and extending or getting the most out of your life here on earth is your greatest goal, it will be taken from you. And you're going to have nothing to show for it. Nothing. But if you give your life, if you take up your cross, if you obey the call to discipleship, then you will save it. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in reflecting on these words, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And what that means is that you don't have to necessarily give your life as a martyr in order to save it. That's not what it's talking about. But it's embracing that cross, whatever that cross is for you. It's willing to identify yourself with Him. And that means you no longer identify yourself by you and your agenda, your purposes, your desires. You're identified with Him. You know, we often use this phrase when, when we come to faith that I gave my life to Jesus. You ever heard people say that? I gave my life to Jesus when I was 10 years old, you know, and it was really great, and I, I cried, and I got baptized, and it was all that good stuff. I wonder how many of us actually do that. I wonder how many of us actually give our lives to Jesus when we come to faith or profess faith. To give your life means that you give your time. You give your needs. You give everything. You give your family. You give your ambitions. You give your identity. Anything that you find glory in. Anything that you find hope in. Anything that you have a desire for. You lay that down. You're giving everything for Christ. You don't add Jesus. I don't add Jesus to Chet. You know, to kind of make myself complete. No, Jesus comes and I die. That's the way that He intends it can't just tack him on where it's convenient. He takes it all, and I get the cross. Even if that means that you suffer and die, you are willing 
Because you know that not only do you get the pain of the cross, but you also get the hope. You also get the peace. You also get the joy. You also get the love of the cross. Martin Luther once said, God can only be found in suffering and the cross. You want to know who God is? You want to understand who God is? It takes two things. You've got to understand the cross. But can you really do that unless you suffer? He sees that suffering is important for us to really firmly grasp this. It's in the cross, friends, that we see the unbelievable, the, the awesome holiness, justice, righteousness, and 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 perfect wrath of God meet together with the unbelievable mercy and, and love and grace of God. It's only there that we see the just wrath of God being satisfied by His infinite love as He slays His Son. We only understand God in light of that. And to deny the importance of suffering in recognizing that is to turn a blind eye to Christ. It's to turn a blind eye to the gospel. We just don't get it. You can't get there without suffering. You can't get there without the cross. But when we understand that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, then this love, this love that we have have freely received overflows in a desire to serve Him, whatever the cost. We love Christ. We want to be with Christ. He is our hope. He is our joy. And so we no longer want to live for ourselves. We love Him. And so we take up the cross, whatever that is. We don't fear it. We're happy to offer our lives as living sacrifices. We are compelled by the love of God that can only be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Not only do you give up living to preserve your life, but you also give up this foolish pursuit of seeking self-praise. When you recognize the glory of God in the face of Christ, then, then the idea of our glory is just foolish. I mean, think about it. This is God who spoke a word, and the Son came into existence. I, don't even, I can't even remember how hot the sun is. Unbelievable. And the light that it... You know, it's like looking at God and seeing Him who created the sun and say, Look, God, I learned how to light a match. That's what our glory is. In Him we see infinite worth. We see infinite need to be praised. He, he's worth it. it. When we look at God, we see how, how great He is, how majestic He is. And when we begin to see Him rightly, then we begin to see ourselves for what we truly are. And what we see isn't always pleasant, right? It's pretty hopeless and pretty wretched. It's absolutely hopeless and absolutely wretched. 
Now, we can't deny that. And so we, we want to praise Him. How foolish is it that we seek glory then for ourselves? How foolish is it that we continue in that path of trying to bring honor and glory to my name as if I'm anything? What matters is Christ. Now, when we recognize the infinite worth of Christ, it frees us from the need to boast in ourselves. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28-31, through 31, that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in His presence. He is the source of your life in Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Disciples of Christ, they don't boast in this life or the things that are gained from it because they see them for what they are. They're dust and vapor. They don't matter. True disciples live for His sake and for the Gospels. True disciples boast in the cross. A third description of true discipleship is that the Gospel is most precious, not the things of this world. Following Christ means leaving behind the idol of self-profit. Look again at verses 35 through 37. It says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? Now, some of your translations may have life instead of soul. Those words are interchangeable. It's, it's psyche. Uh, it, it's the same word that we get uh, uh, psychology from. I mean, it, it's basically your immaterial being, right? Everything that makes up not, you that's not your body, right? So your mind, your, your heart, your soul, your strength, your life, your soul, like, it's just everything, your emotions, all of that coming into being, everything that is you that is not your body, that is your soul, that is your life, that is yourself. We've seen and we, or we've read about, or, or, may, or maybe you guys are like uh, you know, Twitter stalkers, uh, where, you, where you follow people around, where their sole goal, their sole ambition in life is really to gain the world. Right? You know, you follow Shaq, I don't know who you follow, whatever. Uh, but, but, you know, we, there, we, what we see and what we read about is that, that, like, we have this innate desire for glory. And we, we define that in different ways. For some, that might be wealth. For some, that might be success or fulfilling ambitions or popularity. Um, it could be status. People want to become the next American Idol. I mean, you name it. We, we all kind of want to do it. We, by nature, want glory. And, we, and you and I, we may not go to such efforts, right? You know, we're not going to go on... Uh, a reality TV show or something like that so we can become famous. But, but we all want acknowledgement and respect. We all want love, right? We all want to do well in the things that we do, right? We all want to get straight A's. We all want life to be easy for us. We all want to be able to get what we want when we want it. You know, I'm a slave to the microwave because I can get it in just a couple of minutes rather than have to cook it on the stove, you know. So it, we, we, by nature, want those things. We want life to be easy. And, and according to the Disney Channel, apparently all children have the aspiration of being rock stars, all stars, or princesses. So which one are you? You know, I'm the princess. No. Um, Kidding. Um, but in truth, we all want glory. We do. We want glory. We, but, but here's the thing about glory. Glory is always outside our grasp. 
You can never reach it. And you know that as soon as you gain that thing that you've been hoping for, you turn around and the next moment you're wanting to advance that to the next thing. Right? So you don't even get to enjoy the glory that you've received in that moment. You're always grasping for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But we can have everything that this world has to offer and still be miserable. Right? You see this when guys reach the top at a certain game and they're just like, they're miserable. They have no hope. They don't know what to do with their lives. So like Michael Jordan, they retire and then they come back and then they retire and then they play baseball and then they, you know, going to do all this stuff because they don't know what to do with themselves, right? I hear these words from Lucius Septimus Severus. He was a second century Roman emperor, all right? At the time, he was king of the world. No one had more power. No one could fulfill his desires more than Severus. He had everything that this world has to offer. He says, I have been everything, and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of the one of whom the world was too little. I mean, this man had everything, every desire, every power, every pleasure, but he found that the world was too little to satisfy his lusts. And for all his status and privilege, for all his greatness and power, he knew that at the end of the day, it would come to nothing. In the end, this emperor of the world would be ashes in a tiny little urn. Friends, things that perish, things that rust, things that come to an end, they're never going to be able to satisfy. They won't. They can't. They'll never be able to live up to what they promise. And Jesus says that you can gain it all. You can gain everything. Right? You can have the relationships. You can have all the hopes and dreams, whatever they are. It's all, none of it is going to matter. It's all going to come to nothing if you forfeit your soul. To gain the whole world and to forfeit your soul is to profit nothing. You can't take any of that garbage with you. I mean, think about all the blood and sweat and tears you put into whatever your aspiration is. All the time and energy that you invest in relationships only for them to come crashing down. Right? If your hopes are found in those things, it's not going to satisfy. It can't. So what does this say about the worth of the human soul? He says it's worth more than the whole world. It's worth more than Severus's empire. It can't be purchased with anything that this world has to offer. And that's why Jesus asked the rhetorical question, what can man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. You can't give anything in return for your soul. Not even if you were Severus and you were to return your whole empire and try to give it up, you can't do it. If you were to decide from that point on, you were going Buddha and you were going to just live a life of abject poverty and you were going to try to give everything away, you could not pay it back. You can't do it. It is of infinite worth compared to the world. Dawson Trotman once said that there are only three things that are eternal. God, the Word of God, and the souls of men. And if those things are everlasting, then those are what we ought to be most concerned about because they are worth the most. Yet we squander these away on, on momentary glory, on, on cheap thrills, or for that brief instant where we might feel like we're on top of the world. 
We damn ourselves and others for, for a second satisfaction at an unquenchable desire. We've all sinned. We've all placed ourselves under the just wrath of God. We are outside of our ability to save our soul. For sin, the, the issue behind sin is abject rebellion to God. We say, you know what, your way's not good enough. I don't like it. I want to live my life this way. I don't care about your plan for creation. I don't care about your plan for people. I don't care that what I'm doing is a direct denial of your very character and is abhorrent to you because you are perfect in all your ways. I want to live for myself. I want to do as I please. And you know what? You can pursue it your whole life and live it up and you'll never be satisfied. You'll be empty just like Severus and at the end of the day your soul is gone. It's over. Your soul is worth more than that. Stop settling for cheap thrills. Jesus says that there is nothing that you can give for your soul. It is gone. You can't buy it. Only one of infinite worth could purchase what costs more than the whole world. Only one of infinite worth. And that's what Jesus does. Friends, this is why the gospel is so glorious. Because the Son of God... Perfect man, perfect God, came, lived a perfect life. And he laid it down for scum like you and me who want to live for ourselves and hate him. All of us. He's willing to die for you, to pay the penalty that your sin deserves, to satisfy God's wrath against you, to give your soul its true joy, its true satisfaction, its true longing, which is imperishable glory. But it's not found in yourself. It's found outside yourself. It's found in Him. He's offering it to you if you would just open your eyes and receive it. You have the opportunity to be reconciled to God and to bask forever in the unfading, imperishable, infinite glory of God. Friends, living for your own glory is too light a thing to live for. It is too light a thing. We must live for His. And though we cannot earn it, He offers it freely to us. Not by works, but by His grace. But that won't be ours if we pursue our own glory instead of resting and waiting for His. As C.S. Lewis in his well-known illustration from Way to Glory says, Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. Friends, we are far too easily pleased. Why fool about with perishable pleasures that cannot satisfy and cannot keep? Why not live for a greater, unfading glory that promises joy inexpressible. True discipleship is centered on Jesus, not on self. It sets its hope on the cross and not on life. It values the gospel above the world. And fourth, true discipleship is unabashed, not ashamed. 
Following Christ means leaving behind the idols of self-promotion and self-pleasing. Now, I know that this is an uncommon word, this word abashed, but somehow unashamed doesn't really capture the weight of it. To be unabashed is to be absolutely shameless, that you are abandoned, that you are barefaced, you're bold, you are brazen, you are candid, you are glaringly obvious, you are completely transparent, you are unblushing, you are unmitigated, you are wanton. Unashamed just doesn't really cover that. It means that you are sold out and that you're proudly telling everyone about it. Verse 38 says that for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I mean, let's face it. All of us have balked at the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. All of us at one time or another have cowered in fear and been ashamed of of who we are in Christ at that moment. Right? We've all done it. We've all been guilty of that. We've trembled at the idea of telling others about Him. But we also have this tendency to kind of treat evangelism as if it's optional. As if it's to be just sort of left and relegated to those, those uh, uh, gregarious few who are unabashed and like to talk a lot and really loud, kind of like Jim. And, and you know, we're, so we're going to leave evangelism to Jim and, and, and then we're just going to go on and do our thing. Right? And leave it to those guys who are specially called, specially trained to do that. But that's not what Jesus says here. Right? Here Jesus is talking to his disciples and to the crowd. And he says, if you were to come after me, you cannot be ashamed of me. You tell others about me, even when it's not convenient. Even if it might cost you something like your dearly beloved job or your time or your relationship or whatever it might be. You put me first. You're unashamed by me and my words. Evangelism is not optional for those who would come after him. If you love me, you will not be ashamed to tell others about me. That's what he says. Yeah, we often look at recognize, or we often just kind of look at evangelism as if it's some sort of like just burdensome duty. We just have to kind of, you know, pull our pants up and just kind of get it over with, and then we kind of feel self-righteous because we actually did it. But we're missing the point entirely. Evangelism is worship, right? If you are so consumed, if you're so focused on the glory of Christ and what He has done for you and how much he has loved you, then your response, one of love, one of over, just overwhelming just desire to just be with Christ, and you can't help but tell others about it. Right? You talk about the things you love. We all understand this. We've all been around people that have talked incessantly about the things that they love. They think about them even more. It's always on their mind. It's always on their lips. They want to talk about what they love. It's that easy. You're unabashedly professing your love for it. You talk about it constantly. You think about it all the time. You would do anything for it, right? You would lie for it. You would try for it. You'd walk the wire for it. You'd even die for it because you know it's true. Everything that you do is for love, right? Did I lose some of you to Brian Adams or, you know, Kevin Costner in tights? I I hope not. Yeah, I did. (laughs) Sorry. Um, If you love something, you tell others about it, right? You can't help it because you love him. You love Him. You want to tell others about Him. You know His value. You know His worth. 
You know, you, and you long more than anything else just to praise Him. This is the proper motivation for discipleship, not duty. Worship is the proper motivation for discipleship. It's the proper motivation for evangelism. It's only the only thing that will ultimately sustain obedience is when you recognize the incomparable worth of Christ and you long to praise it. Nothing else will leave you unabashedly telling others about him. But let me ask you this question. What does it mean if you don't? What does it ultimately mean if you're ashamed of Christ and his words in the midst of this sinful and adulterous generation? It means either you don't love him or you love the sinful, adulterous generation more. You're loving yourself more than Christ. You're loving what you think you can gain from the world. You love the sin and the adultery. You long for that. Your desire is to please yourself or to please others, to please this generation. We may profess to love Christ, but we really, we love our sin. We love our lives. We love this world more, and so we are ashamed of Christ. Rather than worship Him, we worship the world. But when we worship the world, we're really worshiping ourselves. But what Jesus says next should grip us. He says, listen, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of my Father with his holy angels. Jesus is speaking of his second coming, the day in which he will be revealed in all his glory, in which the whole world will recognize and see and will have to stand and give an account to him. Matthew adds in his, his retelling back in, in chapter 16, verse 27, that Jesus says that he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is clearly speaking of judgment. That there is a day when he returns in glory, every knee will bow, and the, he will judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked. All will stand before him in judgment. And the last thing that we'll want on that day is for Christ to be ashamed of us. Christ is not simply calling us to feel uncomfortable for Jesus. I hope you guys recognize the weight of this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, most of whom will die unashamedly professing Christ. Mark is writing this gospel to a bunch of Gentile Christians in and around Rome under the persecution of Emperor Nero. For them, for some of them, this is a death sentence. And Mark knows it. He's not oblivious to the fact that this has real weight to it. Thousands would die by Nero's hand by the order of this this brutal, this narcissistic, this power-hungry ruler because he didn't like Christians. And so when Mark says this to his readers, he's literally telling them, don't deny Christ and die on a cross, literally... Or face the unbearable shame of having denied the lover of your soul. The one who gave his life so that you might live forever. Through the centuries, there have been Christians that have read this. Men and women who have read this passage. And they have given their lives rather than forfeit their souls. This has 
consequences. This is real. Jesus is calling us to more than discomfort for His name. He's asking for your lives. His sacrifice is demanding it. You know, you may have heard of hell described as unquenchable fire and everlasting torment. But I think that for those who live near to the gospel, who have heard it and maybe even made an outward profession of faith, that that eternal torment that they will experience is an eternity of recognizing that they have shamed Christ. They've had to look upon his face and seen the disappointment. That it's an internal, eternal, unbearable, unceasing punishment of asking that question. Oh God, what have I done? But praise God that Jesus isn't one of those do this or else kind of guys. He's not a tyrant. Right? Even in the midst of this rebuke and this challenge, Jesus still offers hope. It's amazing. The fifth description of true discipleship is that we get to inherit the kingdom of God and not the kingdoms of men. Following Christ means leaving behind the idol of self-progress. Jesus continues in chapter 9, verse 1, and he says to them, Truly I say to you that there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amazing thing about Jesus is he never leaves himself without a witness. Though he doesn't have to, he by every right could just say it and leave because he is God. He still offers proof. He validates all his claims with signs and miracles and wonders over and over and over again. And he promises here, he said, listening, listen, I'm calling you to discipleship and the cost is going to be great for following me. But eternally greater if you don't. But just so that you know that my words are true, some of you won't die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Some people wrongly take this to mean that Jesus was predicting that he would return sometime during the lifetime of the disciples, that his second coming would be while, while Peter or John or some of the disciples lived. But, but clearly from other passages and, and, and from just our experience, I mean, looking around, the life, you know, the world's still pretty messed up, but we know that that's not true. No, he's, he's actually proving it. He's pointing towards two things that we see in Scripture. One is in the very next passage that we'll look at in a couple of weeks, the transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain, right? And they, there, before their eyes, they see Jesus being transfigured. They see the glory of the Lord shining all around him. Jesus is up there and he's talking with Moses and Elijah, two, two really important guys in Israel's history that have been like gone for a long, 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 long time. And here he is you know, having this conversation with them they're freaked out. But the transfiguration is just one of two. The transfiguration is actually a prolipsis. It's a foreshadowing of an even greater display of Jesus' glory and power. And that is the resurrection. Right, this is pointing to, you remember, he's speaking to the crowd. He's not just speaking to the disciples, and he's saying to this crowd, some of you are going to see the resurrection. You're going to see me raised from the dead. And there, my glory will ultimately be shown. I, I will reveal to myself, to you, ultimately, who I am. 
Because Jesus had predicted his resurrection multiple times. He said to them, to his disciples, that he had the authority to lay his life down. And he had the authority to take it up again. And in his resurrection, he proves it. His power and his glory are put on display. As Romans 1.4 says, that the resurrection was a public declaration of Jesus' divinity and power. It says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is evidence of Jesus' power and glory. The transfiguration is a foreshadowing of that. These together are absolute proof to those who are listening to Jesus that His call to discipleship is true and right and that He is going to honor His promises. Therefore, they could trust Him. They could live in confidence. They could give up their earthly kingdoms because they could be sure that they would inherit the kingdom of God. And it's far greater. The kingdom is here because the king is near. And so friends, I'm just, I implore you, don't waste your life on vain pursuits. Live for something greater. Even if you should gain every desire, even if you should fulfill every wish, even if you should get every one of your dreams to come true, your soul will not be satisfied. Your lusts will not be quenched. And at the end, you will have nothing to show for it. It may taste sweet in your mouth, but it will rot in your stomach. In the end, you will be like Severus. A little urn will contain all the remains of one for whom the world was too little. You know, there was another man who would actually later take the throne as the emperor of the world. The 8th century king and professed Christian Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the man. There was no one more powerful, no one greater. And though we can't possibly look at the aspects of his life, I just want to focus on his tomb. See, Charlemagne died in the, in the, in the ninth century. He's like 8, 814. But about 200 years later, there was another king that was kind of consumed by Charlemagne. He knew how great and important this king was, and so he desired to learn about him. And so his name was Otto III, and he had taken Charlemagne's throne. He decides that he's going to go into Charlemagne's tomb to see how they buried this great man, to see what sort of treasures were there. He was surprised to find that when he entered the tomb, that it wasn't as extravagant as other kings. In fact, it was pretty plain. And he was really taken by the fact that instead of a, 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 a sepulcher or you know a coffin, that he they had a, that that Charlemagne had a throne. He was actually buried upright. He had his crown on his head, and he had something in his lap. So Otto made his way over there, and he looks, and what he sees laid out across this great man's lap were the Gospels. And Charlemagne offered instruction to say, listen, when I die, point my finger here to the text that we're looking at this morning. A bony finger of what once was the greatest man in the world was outstretched and laying on these verses. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Friends, the cost of discipleship is great. I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be tough. 
It's going to be hard. You have to take up your cross. You will sweat. You will bleed. You will mourn. You will experience pain and hardship and suffering and persecution and death. But here's the thing, guys. Aside from the persecution, you'll experience all those things to some degree, even if you're not following Jesus. Even if you have the whole world like Severus, you will still sweat and toil and experience pain and hardship and death. All those things are coming. All those things are guaranteed. But in the end, you're going to sacrifice all the more. Because you're going to forfeit the most precious thing that you have, your soul. Jesus offers you something infinitely more valuable, infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more wonderful, infinitely more satisfying. But you have to give up the pursuit of self, of self-preeminence and self-permission, of self-preservation and self-praise, of self-profit and self-promotion, of self-pleasing and self-progress. You have to die to yourself. Take up your cross and unabashedly love the gospel. Live for the glory of an imperishable kingdom. Not one that despite all of your toil, all of your labor, all of your burden will turn to dust just like your bones. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray that you would open our eyes to see and behold the wonder of the cross. God, I pray that that we would be able to look beyond the moment, to look beyond the next few moments, uh, the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, and be able to see that there is more to life than what is right around us that so often consumes us. God, I pray that that we would see the, the futility in all of it, That the things of infinite worth are the things that are everlasting. May we set our hope on those and live for those. God, I know that there are all these struggles that are weighing at our hearts right now. And I pray that, that we would be open to them, that we would lay them down and recognize that Christ died for those and that we are not bound by them if we are in Him. God, help us to see his beauty. We ask this in his name. Amen.